Welcome to Writers on the Beat, where crime writers meet crime fighters. I'm your host, Gavin Reese, and I'm proud to be part of the Authors on the Air Global Radio Network. Every episode of this podcast will bring in a variety of experts to help all writers incorporate more authentic cops, crime, and criminals in their stories. For this episode, best-selling author Laura Elliott has stepped into the interrogation room to clear a few things up. A resident of Dublin, Ireland, Laura's written seven novels, including Guilty, The Betrayal, and The Wife Before Me. She's also, under an alter ego, June Considine, written 12 books for children and young adults. Her short stories have featured in a number of teenage anthologies and also been broadcast on radio. Prior to work as a full-time writer, Laura's also been a journalist and magazine editor. Welcome to Writers on the Beat, Laura. Thank you so much for joining me today. Well, thank you for asking me, Gavin. It's a pleasure. So I've read bits from three of your novels to prepare for this interview, and I'm genuinely impressed with the, the depth and the breadth of your writing, especially considering that you don't write in series. Um, for readers who are new to you and to your works, what do you want them to know about your current publications and any works in progress you're writing right now? Well, I, yes, you're, you're quite right. I, I don't write a series. I often wish I, I, I did because I feel it's something you can become very familiar with your characters, with the situations, and it's it will glide you into the next book. By the time you finish one series, I would imagine you probably have the next story yes. ready to go because it will probably have evolved during the writing of the previous book and you can't fit it in. So suddenly you're looking at it and saying, this would make a great uh, you know, story in its own right. With me, I, I tend to finish a book and it's gone and I start afresh. And I always feel uh, that beginning, it's so difficult because I have lived with my characters possibly for the best part of a year between writing the draft and redrafting it and proofing it and all the different stages that a writer goes through before the book is ready for publication. So I'm so familiar with my characters to the fact that I would even dream about them at night, which is ridiculous, <laughs> but I do. And then all of a sudden, they're gone. And there's a whole new set of very sort of ghost-like characters <laughs> coming back to be brought to life. So that is always the difficult stage, getting into the new book. So how, how do you describe your books and your genre to to someone who uh, who's new to your work? Well, I it's I don't know if they really fit into a very defined category. Mm -hmm. They are um, classified as psychological thrillers, and um, so probably there is definitely a psychological element to them. Uh, they are mainly about an incident, usually, that happens that destabilizes a group of people. It could be a family or, um, you know, uh, uh, people who are dealing with each other through work or through um, the media, as in the case of guilty. But when an incident, a particular occurrence happens, then everything is just thrown up in the air and it's how people cope with it. So really, my books would be about just the interaction between people and how uh, they are impacted by the particular tragedy or whatever it is that has changed everything for them. Yeah, your writing has reminded me a lot of, uh, of Harlan Coben's work, in especially that you know he, he has a, 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 a series he does write, but the majority of his works are, are standalone, I, I guess, psychological thrillers like yours. And it, it mm -hmm. seems to me that the 
a lot of the central theme is or are these these extraordinary events happening to completely ordinary people who could be any one of us uh, could be any one of us readers with no that's right yes. you know, special training yes, no special I, background and then how do we deal with that yes like suddenly you're I, I suppose I mean recently I, I was involved in a car accident not thankfully not a serious car accident oh, good. but um, it, it happened and mm-hmm. no, nobody was injured but they could have been mm-hmm. and I remember the shock of that stayed with me for so long afterwards not the accident accident itself but the what could have happened and would have changed my life forever and so some, something as simple as just going out for a drive you know can can do that but when it's a crime or when it's um, a death by by misadventure or whatever mm-hmm. uh, you know it definitely does just the life can change in an instant and that's what interests me how people cope with that how they react oh, and well. once I get my teeth into something then you know off I go Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, and the, the first uh, first book of yours I, I picked up and started, uh, Guilty, is I think yes. for me it, it's going to fill a massive hole in my heart as a, as a as a fiction fan um, that uh, has been there since the BBC series called Whitechapel ended. Uh, Whitechapel is obviously yeah. you know told from the perspective primarily of the investigators, but Guilty mm-hmm. seems to have a very uh, similar themes, similar suspicions, but it's it's told from the family's point of view. And I, I, I'm wondering what inspired this story and how did you go about crafting the, the plot? Yes, I I was, some years ago, uh, there was a situation um, where a young a young girl disappeared and sadly her body was, was later found. Mm. And there was a lot of, um, let's just say, dubious practices on the part of some of the journalists who investigated that particular um, uh, search and eventual discovery. And like phones were hacked, you know, parents' phones oh. and so forth. And I, I was absolutely appalled at the time. It became yes. a, a, a court case and there were very serious repercussions after it. But, uh, and also the fact that I had worked as a journalist myself mm-hmm. and I, I know the excitement of um, wanting to get a story. And so really, there was a family in in Guilty, but then there was also the journalist who was chasing the story. And there is that sense of the story is everything, and it comes before maybe your finer feelings of, you know, how are the family coping? And, Mm -hmm. you know, what is the intrusion of the media going to do to them? And so that interested me very much seeing it from the journalist's point of view and also from the family who were impacted by the by the tragedy. You know, it's interesting you say that. And I I felt that a lot of a lot of my my life, my work as a cop, it's very easy to get wrapped up in that pursuit, right? That, you know, we yeah. you know, there's a big difference oftentimes in what I knew versus what I could prove. And, you know, yeah. what I know is, involves an awful lot more of the human experience and, you know, my own perceptions versus what I can prove in court. And of it's course. very easy to get to get um, so wrapped up in that that, you know, you start justifying um, in your own mind, you know, little small little things that become bigger things. And then it sounds like with these journalists landed them in, in some hot water. Yes, that's it. And also, I, I, I think, too, in the case of journalism, it's 
the um, the power of words, mm-hmm. the way words are used yes. to um, so, you know imply something. Um, you could write like two people could write a feature about the same thing, and they could read quite differently depending on the words that are used. And so in in guilty, I wanted the journalist to. Um, write in a way that implicated one of the characters, but yet, uh, you know, w- would not land her in trouble in terms of, yes. um, you know, what's the word I'm looking for? But legally, you know, that she would be defaming him. So, you know, she had to choose her words very carefully, but they still uh, released a stream of suspicion by the way the, the, the feature was written. And, and that interested me, and particularly um, in writing the articles for the book because I threaded the various newspaper reports through the book. And I quite enjoyed that experience of implying something without saying it. Yeah, and you know, that's something I, I think you know, we often forget um, that you know, words do have meaning and the, the, way that, the way that you say something shapes the narrative around it, even if you don't outright make an accusation, you can very easily, right. you know, slander, mm-hmm. defame, uh, you know, folks without actually using specific words, specific accusations. Tone is is an awful lot, and that's that's a very real responsibility journalists and uh, cops also have in the in their documentation. Of course. Uh, the the yes, next. Yes. Well, that was. Um... Yeah, that was something that, as I say, that was the inspiration of my own experiences as a journalist and the, the excitement of the chase, as they say, yes. where, you know, I, I mean, I would never have covered um, an incident like the one I wrote about in Guilty. But there were times, you know, that I would feel quite high, you know, from yes. a particular, uh, if I was chasing a particular, if I was doing an investigative piece, um, you know, so I, I always had to watch that in myself, that you know, I, I was balanced and I, I could see how you would get completely caught up in a story, especially if you had a very strong suspicion mm-hmm. that the person you were writing about was guilty. Yes. Yeah. And that's, that's part of the problem, right? You know, knowing, mm-hmm. <laughs> knowing what you can't yes. prove. Um, yes, of course. Now the, the, the next book that I, I started of yours, the, the wife before me, is very right. interesting to me, both as a reader and as a as a writer who's you know perpetually studying craft myself. Um, as writers, we're we are most cruel to the characters that that we love or are most endearing to us, and that kind of has led me to conclude a couple things. First, that the main character in this, Elena, must be the favorite character you've ever written <laughs> because of all the struggles that she has very early. And the second, indeed, yes. Yes. My second conclusion is that I hope you never write a book about me because I'll probably have to start out penniless, divorced, and addicted to huffing diesel fumes or something and fight my <laughs> way back. I suppose I was a bit um, heavy on um, on Nick, but you know I wanted to um, just explore that whole area of domestic abuse. Yes. And the and it, not even so much the physical abuse as much as the um, mental abuse. The you know, destroying somebody's yes. confidence and with, again, with words. Yes. And so I, um, I, I, um, once I got involved in the story, then it took off in directions that I hadn't really anticipated. But my main reason for writing the book was just to explore that theme. Yeah, that's because sadly it is. Oh, it's very real. 
very real. And it's yeah. it's also so very hard to articulate. It's so very hard to regulate or, or to criminalize yeah. from a, a statutory mm-hmm. standpoint. Um, yes. You know, yeah, and interestingly enough, I was just listening to an interview on one of our um, Irish radio stations this morning, and it was um, a woman, a politician who had been involved in the peace process in Northern Ireland, wow. and she was talking about domestic violence, mm-hmm. and she said when um, when the troubles, as we call it, the troubles yes. were on in Northern Ireland, and there were huge difficulties, and the the, the police were like strange totally um you know in just in dealing with the the, the, the violence recurring violence that domestic abuse uh, took very um very very much a back seat yes. because there just weren't the resources to deal with it and it became quite serious problem and it was only when the troubles um ended or the peace process came into to effect that um you know the services were able to seriously deal with issues like that. And I thought that was very interesting. Yes. That, you know, because the resources of the state were, um, had to deal with a very specific, immediate issue. Mm-hmm. And the other just had to, to be ignored, more or less. Yeah, that's one of the, one of the things that was my, my biggest change in the, my perception of law enforcement and the criminal justice system and the reality of those things was that the business of law enforcement and criminal justice is very depressing. It is very much like, you know, any other corporation or entity in that you have a budget, you have resources, and you have to prioritize where you're going to allocate your money and your people and your time. And so often, um, law enforcement especially is almost entirely reactive. So, um, you know, the biggest bleeding problem gets the most money, the most resource, the most people. Um, but things like domestic violence in light of, you know, terrorism, domestic terrorism, mm-hmm. um, of course, are, are going to, you know, universally, I mean, it won't even, you know, rise to the top. And, and those people, especially who are suffering the unseen abuse, the psychological abuse, the emotional abuse, um, who are, hostages, victims in their own homes, um, but they don't have a mark on them. They probably suffer yes. I think, more than most because they have no outlets, no sympathy, um, no recourse. They are they are um, almost non-entities in the justice system. And it, it's, uh, it's horrible uh, for those folks to try to navigate that. Yes, because how do you define, yes. um, how do you define that kind of abuse? Um, you know, to describe it, uh, you probably can't put it into words because uh, they're just words that somebody has used on you. Mm-hmm. But, um, you know, the, the, the impact that they have um, when you try to explain it to an outside force, mm-hmm. it probably loses its impact. Yes. And you could come across as somebody who can't take a joke or you're fine or you're, you know, it's very, very easy to distort that kind of abuse. It is. And sadly, that does happen. It does. And, you know, so many folks, you know, the, I think, you know, the, the knee-jerk response from people on the outside of it usually is something like, well, so he's mean to you. Why don't you just leave? Mm-hmm. And it's, it's never yeah. that simple. Um, no. You know, and oftentimes, Especially if there are children involved. Oh, yes. yes. You know, and oftentimes these women are, are so psychologically 
berated and at such a low point, they don't have oftentimes the confidence to think that they can leave, that they can survive. That's on right. Them. Yes, they're they extremely like, vulnerable. Yeah, they feel that they failed to such a degree that they don't have that option anymore. They don't have that choice. And it's, it has to be a yes, horribly and, depressing place. Yes, I agree with you. So that was how the wife before me came about. And I I do tend to pick dark subjects, I'm afraid. <laughs> <laughs> They're the ones that interest me. Now, the uh, the Betrayal, which was the, the, the next book of yours that I, I, I started taking a look at is is really intriguing to me also and what from what I, I, I think I understand of it so far and, and please correct and forgive me if I'm wrong but I, I think that I'm going to follow the exploits of this teenage sociopath who I think probably has multiple personality disorders uh, as she goes about her quest to fit in and succeed at all costs uh, am yeah. I, okay so um, most stories like this are usually told uh, from an investigator's point of view, but you've brilliantly let us into the head of this teenager uh, who is a, a truly crazy person. What what inspired mm-hmm. this character in, in your decision to let her tell her story? This is the Karen character? Yes. Yes, yes. Um, I don't know how that started. Um, I think I probably, in fact, looking back on it now, I did know somebody who went through an experience of being stalked. Mm-hmm. And it more or less came out of that idea. Like there are a number of characters in the betrayal who are um, there's a husband and wife who married very young and who never really had a chance to get to know themselves and then they reach a point where there's a little bit of an empty nest syndrome going on and they decide to, to part and into that separation comes this character this, this um, as you call her, the multiple personality yes. character. And because I suppose the husband is suddenly free, uh, you know, and uh, his interest develops in her and she makes sure that it does because she has a grudge against the wife who has parted from her husband. And so there's that kind of a, a dynamic of a sort of a threesome, but in a different uh, context that um, interested me in that. And as I say, I had known somebody who was stalked, numerous phone calls, various difficult things happening. And that that memory had stayed with me. And so I, I just thought, if you like, but that was the push that got me into that particular story. Now, for in researching for, for this character um, and the, the, all the, the, the psychology and psychological disorders that, that went into this, I, I would expect there would have had to have been quite a bit of research or maybe a technical advisor or how did you go about uh, portraying? Yeah, I did. I spoke to, yeah, I spoke to a psychiatrist and I also did a lot of reading. Wow. And, um, you know, it was mm-hmm. because, I, again, I wouldn't really be familiar with a character like that. Yes. But I was very, very curious about how this sort of self-obsession would develop or how it would be portrayed. So I, I did talk 
to a couple, in fact, a psychologist, a friend of mine, to a psychiatrist, and also, uh, you know, a certain amount of reading went into it. And out of that, uh, you know, you, you sort of distill all that information. Uh, you know, you, you draw it in and then you just, you know, ease it out. And you don't use a lot of what you, um, what you hear, but it gives you a background so that you can write with a certain amount of confidence. Now, when reading through these these first three samples I've, I've taken of your work, I'm also really impressed with how effectively uh, you write in different points of view, um, from you know the third person omniscient or third person limited, and then on betrayal, writing in a mix of first and third person. How do you see, I guess, yes. the pros and cons of those different points of view, and how do you, how do you decide how to tell the story from from them? Yeah, it's. Um... I, I don't even know if I make a decision. It's almost like when I start writing from a particular point of view, a character's point of view, it almost it goes into the, you know, into the uh, present tense, we say, into the first person or into the, it just seems, it just seems to be the way I work. And um, I've never sat down and analyzed it, but um, suddenly the voice is right in that format. Mm. And then with somebody else, I might have a more reflective sense about them. And so I start writing in the third person and in the, um, in the past tense because I find trying out different styles um, actually affects the way I write or the way mm. the character develops. So um, that's really, it's just, I suppose, a lot of trial and error as well because sometimes it just doesn't work. And I might have progressed quite a bit with um, a, a particular angle in the story. And then I suddenly realized this is going very, very flat. Why is that? And it just could be that it wasn't the right decision to make and I need to go back and delete what I've written. And not that I ever delete. I, I, I put it away into a file and think I will use it again. And of course, I never look at it again. But again, that's another <laughs> that's another story. Now, when, uh, what was your your first inspiration to start writing and do you remember what the first thing was that, that you wrote about? Oh, uh, yeah, going back in time, I suppose. Uh, my first, my, my first, um, well, my, some of my friends tell me that when I was going through school, I used to write a lot of poetry. I, I don't have a great memory of that. And I didn't really start writing seriously until I was in my, my early 30s. And I had a family at that stage. And I was hoping to write a novel. And I just found difficult to uh, cope with the demands of um, three small children mm -hmm. and I, I, I didn't I hadn't realized the enormous amount of energy that goes into writing a novel yes. and not just physical energy because but the whole mental uh, effort of trying to construct an imaginary world filled with imaginary characters and I found that you know, my children's demands were, when I say demands, I don't mean it like that, but they, no. it, they were important to me. They needed me. And I just said, I won't do it until they're at an age, you know, when I will have the time to, to give to this writing, this fictional creative writing. And out of that decision, I, I, I went, I, well, first of all, that, that novel I was trying to write would probably never have seen the light of day because I was a total novice. And then I went to a, a creative writing workshop and we had a wonderful tutor who was a newspaper editor. And 
he was doing these classes just as a, a side a side effect. And he liked my work, the short the, the short pieces I was writing for the course, and he started to publish them in his newspaper. And that was how I became involved in journalism. It was never a decision I made. And then suddenly I was writing short, humorous pieces initially, more or less based around the, the sort of domestic life that I was leading. And then they evolved into interviews with people, with investigative pieces and so forth. So I gradually, um, you know, became more skilled as a journalist and more in demand. And I was freelancing because that gave me the flexibility to be, you know, to work from home. And so I was writing for quite a few publications and that went on for a number of years. And then I became a magazine editor and I was traveling a lot and it was quite a demanding job. It was glamorous, but it was very demanding. And the idea that I'd had to write fiction was just getting further and further away. And then I, I just came to a, a, the decision that it's now or never because if I don't do it, you know, I, I will never do it. And I, so I stopped. I just, um, uh, you know, decided, right, no more features. Um, I'm going to sit down and write. And because my daughter at the time, my youngest daughter was 12, uh, and I used to tell her a lot of stories from the time she was a baby, um, I just seemed to automatically fall into writing children's books. And for a number of years, I just wrote very, uh, quite a number of books, and I wrote with great speed and energy. And then I realized that my characters were getting quite grown up and a lot of the issues that I wanted to cover, like I said, the dark issues, <laughs> I couldn't do it through the, yes. the, the books I was writing. And that's how I went into to writing then for, for, for adults and started writing my novels. Now, it, one of the central themes of, of this podcast is that it only takes about a decade of consistent blood, sweat and tears to become an overnight success. And it, it sounds like that's fairly consistent with your experience as well. Uh, a decade would be wishful thinking, <laughs> but however, <laughs> eventually, eventually, yes, uh, my work started to take off and I built up a readership and that's been wonderful. And, you know, I have a lot of contact with my readers. They um, email me and, you know, write to me and it's lovely to hear from them. It's Because I, writing, I'm sure as you know, Gavin, it is a very, very lonely occupation. It is. You have to just sit in that room, either with your notepad or your computer, whatever you use, uh, and and you just have to focus. And you know you're not meeting your friends for coffee, and you're not mm-hmm. going out on the golf course or whatever your particular thing is. Uh, you're really just just writing, and right. that is my life. I I I do have a, a nice social life, but mainly it is, um, you know, it's writing every day. Yes. And especially now that my books are selling, um, you know, quite well, I have deadlines to meet and it's (laughs) it's quite serious. I have to, because there's not just me, there's a team of people waiting for the book to go through the various stages with it. So I I feel that I'm not just working, writing for myself anymore. Mm -hmm. It's it's a joint effort and I do try to meet my deadlines. Now, you know, with all uh, all writers also being readers, uh, do you have a favorite fictional detective or investigator, um, or somebody that's you're holding a little bit more uh, more esteem right now as a as a, a cop detective investigator, or uh, maybe even a revenge artist? 
Um, you mean somebody else's detective? Yes, yes. Like a, another writer. Yes. Yeah, Anne Cleves is. I don't know whether you're familiar with her work, but she she writes about um, a detective in uh, the Shetland Islands of Scotland, in Scotland, and um, they've been made into a television series, which is very very popular over here. And um, I love her books, but also the. Um, the interpretation, the, the the film interpretation, is wonderful. The character of the detective is very much as she has created him, and that's one particular series that I enjoy very much. And then there's an Irish writer who's been doing extremely well. In fact, I think she's now published in the states, and her name is Patricia Gibney, and oh, no. she has a character called a uh, female detective called Lottie, Lottie Parker, who is, uh, I think she's into her eighth or seventh or eighth uh, novel now, and she has been uh, extremely successful. Now, keeping that last answer in mind, Laura, and I, I ask this of all the authors that come on the show, but God forbid it should happen, but if you were to wake up tomorrow and find yourself murdered, would you want one of those fictional investigators on <laughs> the case, or would you choose someone else? <laughs> I think I might choose the Shetland detective. He is a very uh, complex, interesting character. And um, I think I would quite enjoy him investigating my murder. <laughs> well, God forbid. It's, let's hope it never... Jimmy uh, Paris is his name. Ah. And uh, I'd say he's, he's it's good. If you, if you ever have a chance to see the Shetland series, watch it. You'll, you'll enjoy it. Fantastic. And that was something that interested me about the um, that series as well, because it takes place on an island, small enough island, I suppose. And I would feel that, um, you know, when you're in a small community mm-hmm. and a murder happens or some major tragedy, uh, you know, everybody in a way is impacted because it's such a small community. Yeah, so, that is, you know, that's, uh, yeah, that interested me about the Shetland series. Well, Laura, I greatly, greatly appreciate you making time to come and join us on the show and talk about your craft and your books. Where can readers connect with you and uh, maybe sign up for a newsletter or follow along on your new releases? Yeah, well, through my website, they can make contact with me, lauraelliotauthor.com. You've been listening to Writers on the Beat, where crime writers meet crime fighters, a copyrighted broadcast of the Authors on the Air Global Radio Network. I'm your host, Gavin Reese. And this episode's guest has been journalist, editor, and author, Laura Elliott. Until next time, take care of yourselves and each other. Be safe out there.